farming or banking or um, engineering. It may be uh, building uh, houses. It may be digging ditches. It may be running prisons. But there are vocations. And we want to know what does God have to say about our work life? Because for most of us, we will spend more waking hours at work or at school than anywhere else in our entire lives. If you took up all the time you spent in school and all the times you spent at your job, they will outnumber the time you had at home often. And so uh, we are trying to figure out, is God invested in that? What does God want to say to us in that regard? And last week we talked about, um, or two weeks ago, we talked about uh, three things. We said uh, that work exists because God works. And so we said this, we, we as Christians have to reject the myth, the lie that work is a necessary evil. Work is not a necessary evil. Work, God, God works. God does work. God has been working since before creation and he's working up to this day is what Jesus says. And then not only does God work, but God gave humanity work to do, actual work to do as a gift, as a blessing, not as a curse. God did not curse the world with work. He gave work as a meaningful blessing to give us purpose, to give us, to help us thr- flourish and thrive and to live satisfying lives. And apart from work, we cannot do those things. You don't have to look far. If you wonder if you need work to flourish, to to grow psychologically and emotionally, go to a nursing home and just spend an hour in a nursing home talking to people. And the, the number one complaint you'll hear in nursing homes is, I don't have anything to do. I just wish I had something to do. Because we need this. We need purpose. We need something to do. Over the next two weeks, we'll actually stop and we'll see uh, that while work was given as a good gift, it is frustrating and it can be exploitative. But that's because of human sin, not because of God's design. And the last thing we studied last week is that work has dignity because God does it. And based on that, based on the Bible, all work, no matter how menial, no matter uh, manual labor and mental labor, all have value to God. God is invested in both things uh, like from students, teachers, farmers, carpenters, garage, co- garage collectors, bankers, garbage collectors. I misspelled that. It's like gar- I don't know what a garage collector is. Uh, doctors, engineers, they all do the work of God, work that is holy and in which God is personally invested, that God cares about those things and God himself is personally invested in those things. At the same time, we'll talk about this in the next couple of weeks, uh, that this does not mean, this does not mean there are no professions which are off limits to Christians. There are, in fact, professions, jobs, things you can get paid to do or do for free that no Christian should ever do. There are things that jobs that Christians cannot or should not hold because they're incompatible with the gospel. And I don't want to uh, provide an exhaustive list, but things like the production of pornography or pimping or prostituting or slave trading or thieving or torturing or being a tarot card reader. There's dozens and dozens of these jobs. And some Christians actually get forced into them in slavery. Um, And that's, that's a sin of the slave trader not the slave, Um, but there are thousands more of professional vocations that are not in and of themselves sinful, but can be performed in sinful ways, like predatory lending or market manipulation, soil exhaustion, and dishonest car salesmen. I think there are so many more uh, vocations uh, that that some of us can perform with a clean conscience and others of us cannot. Um, And so we have to be clear, uh, we have to be careful as we talk about this stuff. And so, 
uh, today I want to turn and with those things in mind, start to ask, what kind of work did God intend for us to do? What kind of work does God intend for humanity to do? Um, Before we do that, let's pray. Jesus, by uh, the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and would you fill my lungs and my brain and my heart, that the words I speak would not just be my best ideas, but they would be uh, guided and honest and true reflections of what your scriptures teach us and lead us to believe, that they might have the power of your scalpel to change our hearts and to amend our ways, to give us purpose, to lead us into life abundant, to lead us in the ways that produce life and flourishing, that create space for other people to enjoy and to grow, that create safety and protection in this world. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So friends, here's the question. What kind of work does God want you to do? What kind of work does God want you to do? Asked in a really fancy theological way, you say, what's God's will for you? What's God's will for your work? What Anybody remember when you were like graduating college and you're like, I just want to know what God's will for me is and my next job and this, that, and the other. What kind of work are human beings supposed to do? What does it mean for us to be human beings in connection with God? How would we live? And we're lucky at this moment. We're lucky. What does God want us to do? We're lucky that somebody asked Jesus that. Somebody asked Jesus, what is the first order of business for Christians, for, for followers of God? What is the first and most important commandment? And Jesus answered this man. He said, the first and greatest commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. And the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus, uh, the greatest human being who's ever lived, uh, says this is the first order of business for humanity. This is rule number one for what it means to be a human being. Your first order of business is to love God with every part of you, all your creative energies, all your uh, passions, all your strength, and with all your future hopes, to love God with that. And the second that is inseparable from it, the second that can never be divorced, is that you were to love your neighbor like you love yourself, that you're to see the infinite worth of the person standing in front of you and treat them like the God of the universe loved them enough to die for them. That's what, that's what Jesus says. And so let me ask you a second question. Let me ask you a follow-up question. Actually, let's do an exercise. Listen, well, school just started back. The kids have been learning. We're going to do a creative, imaginative exercise. Close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. You're not too cool for this. I know you're thinking that. You're not too cool for this. Close your eyes. And I want to, you to picture yourself. There you are. And you're actually loving God with all of you, everything in you. If you're not yet a Christian and that's not something you can imagine, think of somebody who is a Christian and pious and you respect. and They're loving God. They're actually doing this commandment perfectly. Think about what are they doing? What actions are they doing right now in your head? What are they, where are they? What are they doing? Maybe for some of you, you can uh, keep your eyes closed. You can imagine they're sitting there and they're, they're worshiping. They're in this grand cathedral. There's an organ playing. Maybe for some of these, there's in a, a dark warehouse and there's electric guitars and lasers and fog machines. And maybe it's a monk in a, a rock cloister and he's poring over his books. Or maybe it's a seminary professor and he is studying God's word in Greek and Latin and Hebrew and, and just working his tail off to understand it. Now when you imagine yourself, you're sitting there and you're loving your neighbor as yourself. You're actually loving and serving people as Jesus loved and served you. What are you doing? Where are you in your head? I don't know, maybe you're 
some of us are imagining ourselves at a soup kitchen and we're, we're doling out soup uh, to folk who uh, are homeless and just need a bite to eat. Maybe uh, for you, you're, uh, you're doing after-school tutoring and you're, you're just investing in these kids who need a little help with math or English. Or maybe you're on a mission trip and you're laying down another row of shingles. All right, you can open your eyes. What's crazy is when we imagine that stuff, when we imagine loving God with everything in us, most of us start to go to buildings and churches and those things. But God did not create the world and put a church in it. What's nuts is that when Jesus is asked, what's the first commandment? What's the most important commandment? He says those words. And none of us are surprised by Jesus' answer. But maybe you would be surprised to know that that's not the first commandment in the Bible. That's not the first commandment in the Bible. If you want to see the first commandment in the Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis, you can turn to the very beginning of the Bible. It's the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 28. Big number 1, little number 28. I got to get through all the introduction. Um, Genesis chapter 128. This is the first commandment in the Bible. This is the first thing God tells them. God has just created human beings, male and female, and he tells them this. He says in verse 28, it says, God blessed the man and the woman, and he said to the man and the woman, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And I don't know about you, but I find myself as I read those two things next to each other. Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If Jesus says that's first and most important, then why in the world didn't God tell Adam and Eve to do that in the garden? Was Jesus wrong? Or was God wrong in the beginning? Who got it wrong? Because they they tend to think that the first order of business for human beings appears to be different, right? One over here, you have Jesus talking about loving God, which conjures images of worship in my head. And then on this side, I have in Genesis uh, images of fill, subdue. And so I have images of work, work in my head. So is the first order of business to work or to worship? Well, if you're smart and you know your scriptures, you know that the scripture is going to speak the same word to us. And so the real question we should be asking is how are these the exact same commands? How is loving God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength the same as fill, subdue, rule? And so what I want uh, to do is just talk about that for a second. These things actually are the same. There are not two rule number ones. Because this, this is my thesis for today. The thesis, if this is the, the sentence that I'm going to try to argue and, and convince you of over the next few minutes, is this, that your work, your vocation, whether that's being a stay-at-home mom, being a farmer, uh, being a banker, being a soldier, being uh, a plumber, your work is the primary means by which we love God and love our neighbor. It's the 
It's the way in which you will spend most of your life loving God and loving your neighbor. Our work is not separate from our worship or our service. In fact, it is the primary means by which we do this. And that's the good news. Think about this. This is really good news because if this is not true, if the thesis I'm arguing is not true, then most of us will live guilty conscience lives because we will spend most of our waking hours doing things that we do not think God is invested in. And we will always feel guilty that we have to work so much and it keeps us from going to the food kitchen more, keeps us from being at church more it keeps us from being a missionary more because we will spend 40 to 80 hours a week at job or in school or running a house and only four to eight hours a week in a church building or volunteering but if we can learn to see the connection between these two commands we will see that our work our jobs the position in life God has called us to is actually the place that God has put us in order to love God and to love our neighbors let's see if the scriptures support this idea or to see that, we have to understand Genesis chapter 1, verse 28's commandments to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to rule over the animals. The first one, be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful and increase in number. Uh, this is a command that God has given the animals before us, but uh, the man, Timothy Keller, whose book I've been studying carefully, says this when he summarizes his Bible study. He says, quote, filling the earth means something far more for, far more." than plants or animals filling the earth. It means civilization, not just procreation. God does not want merely more individuals of the human species. He wants the world to be filled with human society. That when God commands us to fill the earth, it does not just mean procreation, it means civilization. That he doesn't want just human beings, he wants human society. And this makes sense. If you just think back on it, God could have created thousands, millions of human beings at one time and spread them all over the world. But instead, God creates a family and he creates a family unit and he builds them up. If you're not sure you could buy that, then just think of reproductive science, right? Think of reproductive science. Nearly every other animal on the planet gives birth to more of their species than we do. Pigs can have two litters of 20 piglets a year. So if God just wanted to fill the earth, he could have made us like pigs, not just that, not only do we usually only have one and it takes a year to grow it inside of you, nine months to grow it inside of you, but my dog, when my dog was three weeks old, he knew almost everything he would ever know. Like he was potty trained, he knew how to go outside, he knew how to start to obey me, he knew where his food was, he knew how to eat, he knew how to walk. But children, human children, human children are useless and helpless for a year and a half. Like they cannot stay alive because God has made it so they need adults. God has made our reproductive systems and our reproductive anatomy and our reproductive development such that God does not want to create the most humans as fast as he can. God wants to create the best humans and the best society he can through generational reproduction and enculturation. To say it this way, using New Testament language, God is not about making more and more and more babies. God is about making more and more and more disciples. And so he has built us just anatomically to have to disciple our children, to have to teach our children, to have to train our children, to have to teach them culture and art and beauty and reading and science. And so when he says fill the earth, reproduce and be fruitful and fill the earth, 
and I think about Jesus' command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, I'm reminded that when Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage from a place in the Bible called Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Verse 5 says, Teach these words to your children. Teach these words to your children. Talk about them when you sit down for dinner. Talk about them before you go to bed. Talk about them when you rise up. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In its original context, it's inextricably caught up in teaching the next generation these truths. And God has made children so slow to grow up, so we'll have time to teach them. And our first role is not a profession. Our first calling is family. You were born into one, whether you like it or not, whether they were good or bad. And it was their job, and they may have failed at it, to teach you. And even if they failed at it, it's your job to teach the ones behind you. And if you're barren and, and you, or you um, have gone through the hard path of infertility, my heart breaks for you. But it doesn't excuse us from this because God's not primarily invested in our physical procreation, but in our spiritual and societal reproduction. And so you too get to invest in this first one. Let's keep going. Next command in this, and I'm never going. Next command is this. Um, we see that we are called to make families before we are called to go and grow vegetables. But Jesus says, and he fleshes out this thing when he says, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to subdue the earth and to rule over the earth? What does it mean? Well, think about it with me this way. That, the Garden of Eden was this perfect place. It was built perfect and human beings were set in it, but it was not complete. That is an arresting thought. That the Garden of Eden was perfect and it was not complete. It needed work. When Adam moved in, he had to renovate the thing. Like, that's a crazy idea, but God has been doing this. Think about God's work so that we can understand filling and subduing. God, in the first five days of creation, God has been doing these actions to fill and to subdue. God takes the formless and chaotic creation in verse uh, 2, and he slowly gives it order by separating the darkness from the light, the heavens from the earth, the waters from the land. And after he creates order, after he subdues that chaos and starts to give it order and structure, he then fills it with life. He fills uh, the skies with stars and the sun and the moon. He fills uh, the waters with the fish. He fills the air with the birds. And he fills the land with the people. God puts, when it subdues, when God uses this language of subdues, God is saying order creation in such a way that it supports and encourages life and then fill it with life. Fill it with life. God's saying take this raw material that I've given you, this incredible earth, and create space in it for life and for flourishing, and then fill it up with kids who love God and trust Him. And so we see, again, my friend Timothy Keller, who I don't actually know, but I met him once. Um, he says this. He says that all... He says... I think he summarized it really beautifully. He says, the world is not hostile so that it needs to be taken down like an enemy. Rather, its potential is undeveloped and so it needs to be cultivated like a garden. We are not to relate to the world as park rangers whose job is not to change their space or to preserve things as they are, 
nor are we to pave over the garden and make a parking lot. Instead, you and I, we are to be gardeners. Gardeners, think about gardeners and their stance towards land. Gardeners don't just take the land and hope and just hope that somehow a pear tree springs up or that wheat grows or that sweet potatoes appear. No, they're not passive. Gardeners get out there and they change the shape of the land and they give it order and they give it purpose so that it will be fruitful and it will multiply and it will support life. And this is the pattern for all of work. This kind of pattern that is creative and assertive, this pattern of rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish is found in all work. Just so I don't copyright, I'm going to read this to you. Think about this. Farming takes the physical matter of soil and seed and produces food. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that gives meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and we teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant piece of art, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out the creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. In fact, our word culture comes from this idea of cultivation. And you see that when we do this, we are doing what God does. And so I want you to think, friends, of your work that, that, that helps bring order to the world and make sense of it. Your work as a mom or as a dad teaching your children. Your work as a, as a mechanic or as a, 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 I don't know, what's a good occupation I haven't used in a while? A, a journalist. When it provides structures to help people think and grow and flourish, it's part of God's work. And personally, there is no better way to love me than doing something with me. Doing something with me. There got to this point in the summer where I was sick and tired of sitting at tables and talking to people. And I love to talk. But I would rather cook a meal with you and talk the whole time we were cooking than I would sit and eat with you. Because I love to do something with you. It's enjoyable to me. And it feels like the conversation gets down in my soul. And the same is true of God. God wants you to pray, but he also wants to participate in your life and you to participate in his. And he wants to do it with you. And the second reason, this is connected to loving God with everything in you. Do you know how you can love me well? Let's ask it in the inverse. You know how you can get on my bad side real quick? You can get on my bad side real quick if you start tearing down and destroying or manipulating or overlooking the people I love most. If you attack my wife or my boys, we are not friends. But if you love my wife and my boys, if you start to teach them and to train them, if you invest in them and you play with them, dude, we are cush. I love you. I am pumped about it. And when you love God's world, you love what God loves. And God loves that. I want to turn very lastly to this thing about how does this equate with serving the people around us. I said that our primary what our job, our calling, whatever it is God's placed us in is a way we can love God by loving the world he makes, by bringing order and structure and culture and society and creativity to God's good earth. 
And so I'm asking, how does your work bless the world God made and God loves? How does your work take raw materials God's given you and turn them into something beautiful and useful? Now, how does your work love your neighbor as you love yourself? I'm gonna cheat to save time. There's a British woman, uh, there was a writer about 60 years ago, a woman named Dorothy Sayers. And Dorothy Sayers says that the essential modern heresy is this, to believe that work is not the expression of human beings' creative energy and the service to society, but that work is only something one does in order to obtain money, which pays for leisure. That our essential heresy as a culture is that we believe work is just something we do to get money in order to pay for the things we want. But she says, doctors practice medicine not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. The culture of the, pa- the cure of the patient is something that happens along the way. Lawyers accept briefs not because they have a passion for justice, but because the law is a profession which enables them to live. But during World War II, many people were drawn into the army and they found a new surprising sense of fulfillment in their work. And the reason why men and women often find themselves happy and satisfied in the army during war is that for the first time in their lives, they have found themselves doing something, not for the pay, which is miserable, but for the sake of getting the thing done, for the sake of being something, part of something that's larger than you. And friends, your work, whether it's painting houses or mopping floors, is something, part of something bigger than you. And so Lester DeCoster says it this way, work is the form in which we make ourselves useful to others, in which others make themselves useful to us. We plant with our work and God gives the increase to unify the human race. Look at the chair that you're lounging in. Look at the pew you're lounging in. Could you have made it for yourself? Could you have made it for yourself? How would you say, get the wood? Would you go and fell a tree? Yes, but only after first making the tools for that and putting together some kind of vehicle to haul the wood and constructing a mill to do the lumber and roads to drive on from place to place. In short, a lifetime or two to make just a single chair. If we worked not 40, but 140 hours per week, we couldn't make for ourselves from scratch even a fraction of all the goods and services that we call our own. Our paycheck turns out to buy us far more than we could possibly make for ourselves in the time it takes us to earn the check. Work yields far more in return upon our efforts than our particular jobs put in. What DeCoster is saying is this. You have been served by more people than you ever realize. That bench you were sitting on, that bench you were sitting on, somebody served you by making it. And if they hadn't made it, you wouldn't be sitting here. You'd be be sitting on the floor. But then you wouldn't be sitting on concrete because somebody made the concrete. Somebody harvested the cement and the gravel and the sand. And somebody mixed that on the ground by hand. And they may or may not have known it, but they were serving you. And now by them serving you and and somebody making power and then the physics to invent light bulb filaments or... um, diodes that emit light when they are mixed with energy, uh, then we wouldn't be in this space doing this thing. We wouldn't have this kind of amplification. And yet all of that was serving you. And so your work serves somebody. Your work, your job does serve somebody or it's not worth doing. It's worth quitting and finding another one. And so let me ask you, what does your work offer the world? How is the world a better place because of your work? And how, if you can't think of a positive thing, think about it this way. How would the world and people's lives be different if no one 
anywhere ever did your job. That'll start to tell you what your work's worth. You may not cure cancer, but you are raising someone's future husband or wife or boss or employee. And that'll change the world for at least one person. You may not be a farmer, but your retirement garden, that garden you just put together as a hobby and you bring me tomatoes out of it, those things are miracles. And you're blessing me who won't grow anything. You may not run a nonprofit, but your work preparing tax returns ensures the government has money to build schools and to serve our children and food stamps to feed our hungry. That website you're building allows people to find the information or products they need to build out their lives with meaning and pleasure. How does your work serve? When you go to work, think of your work as service. Let me finish with a story that changes everything. I'm told there were three men sitting around a giant pile of boulders, and they each had a hammer, and they were sitting there smashing rocks. And an observer walks up. And these men, they're, in, they're, they're there. They're actually um, in prison smashing rocks. And he says, what are you guys doing? The first guy says, I'm doing penance. I'm paying the price for all the wrong things I've done. This work is just punishment. And the next guy says, I'm turning big rocks into little rocks all day long until I go to sleep. And the last guy smiles and he picks up another rock and he smashes it. And he says, I'm building a cathedral. All three men may be right, but only one has any joy because he understands that the work he does, whether it's putting lug nuts on a vehicle or sweeping his kitchen floor, or changing the IV in a hospital, is part of something that is building the world out. We will never work with joy, we will never work with purpose, and we will never feel our job is ministry until we connect it to the bigger picture. So what's your bigger picture? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for meaningful work to do. For those of my friends who don't have meaningful work, whose work is a chore or even worse, is an exploitation, we ask you to give them the courage to find meaningful work and that you would connect them this week with people who could connect them to meaningful work that helps provide thriving, flourishing places for other people that's a blessing. We pray that you would let us see our work in the big picture. And as we've talked about this, we realize that not only have we not seen work as a gift from you that we can, be, we can do with you, but we haven't seen life that way. We've been leading life our own way. And maybe God's been using this sermon to impress that upon you and you want to be reconnected to God. You want to know God's love for you and God's plan for you and God's dreams for you and you want to take advantage of the gifts God has for you. When you can become a Christian, you can start following Jesus and be connected to God right now through a simple prayer, something as simple as ABC, you can A, admit that you've been living life your own way. The Bible calls this sin and it separates us from God. But you can believe that Jesus' death on a cross paid the penalty for your sin and reconnected you with God. And you can commit to following Jesus for the rest of your life, come what may. Jesus, would you give my friends the courage to pray words like this? Jesus, I've made a mess of my life by rebelling against you. But I trust your death on the cross was good enough to save me. 
And so I give you everything I have, and I'll follow you until I die and spend eternity with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, because God's been so good to us, let us return a portion of God's goodness to us with our tithes and our offerings. If you're here for the first time, we don't want your money. We would invite you to our house and then make you pay our electric bill. But we would ask you to fill out a You're Welcome Here card so that we could get to know you and pray for you.